Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Hello and welcome back to Reframing Our Stories. I'm really glad that you are here and joining us today. I just felt like it's important to say that, I don't know, I've just been thinking so much about what's been going on in our world and I feel some things just feel pretty heavy, right? And I just want us to find a way to find and see the good in people and to know that we are worth learning more about ourselves. We are worth understanding our stories. And if we have a story that we are continuously telling ourselves, that is not bringing life to our lives where we are just continually maybe saying negative things about who we are or feeling like we're not good enough or we are constantly comparing ourselves or we just feel like an immense sense of anger. I truly believe that that is not how we're supposed to be living. And that is just the negativity of this world that continuously seeps into our our bones and our bodies. So I'm hoping that today, as you listen, you can take a moment and just remind yourself that you have goodness and that we We do all experience bad days and hurt and suffering, and it's hard, and we don't understand why it happens, but each of us also has good and are worthy of of feeling joy and experiencing pleasure and being able to live fully within ourselves. And I think each of us have to give ourselves permission to just live fully within ourselves. Because when we give ourselves permission to to do that, then we give that to other people. And I think that is what's going to make a better society for all of us. Because that's what I hope, you know, I'm a mom and this is, this is really like not what I was expecting or hoping for my kids. (laughs) I was just wanting something more for them. And, you know, we feel better when we, when we operate out of a sense of joy and out of a sense of gratitude. And when we don't hurt, I teach a lot to kids that are going through puberty and, and I say to them, you know what, can we help what our bodies are doing? And they say, no, I'm like, can we help that our bodies are changing and we're getting acne? Can we help that we're getting spontaneous erections? Can we help that we are bleeding? Can we help that we smell bad sometimes? Right. I mean, yes, we can wear deodorant, but sometimes it just, we smell worse than, than, uh, we're capable of controlling at that moment. I was like, can we help that we trip over our own feet and fall sometimes? No. And so I say, this is the time where we get to care for one another. This is your chance of being able to show kindness and care. Cause I talk about how it's not okay. It's not okay to make fun of people's bodies. These are our personal vessels that take us through this world. And we really 
don't get a say in what those look like, right? They're different. It's a soup of different ingredients of chromosomes and hormones and DNA that we don't have a choice in. So this is our chance to care for one another. And I feel like we are being called out to care for one another. How can we do that? How can we care for ourselves and how can we care for others? So this was just what's on my heart today. Today, we're going to talk to someone who's just so lovely that I'm really excited to talk about or talk with. Back in February, I spoke at a conference where the band The Many performed. And if you don't know their music, please look them up because they have just beautiful, beautiful stuff. And one of the members is Darren Calhoun. On stage, Darren shines. His presence is captivating because of the goodness that radiates out of him. As the conference was ending, Darren and I connected. We both loved what the other was about, which was not surprising since Darren is a lover of story, bringing people together to make connections, and is about justice and inclusion. Darren Calhoun is a justice advocate, worship leader, and photographer based out of Chicago. Intersectionality is his primary lens when facilitating dialogue and education about justice and inclusion for people marginalized based on race, gender, and or sexuality. Darren is currently the digital pastor at Urban Village Church in South Loop and previously served as a volunteer worship leader at Willow, Chicago for close to a decade. Darren is an associate fellow with Christians for Social Action. He co-led the Hashtag I'm sorry and hashtag make love louder campaigns at Chicago's LGBTQ pride parades. He's been a speaker and performer at notable events like the Gay Christian Network Conference, the Wild Goose Festival, and Sojourner Summit for Change. He serves or has served on boards of directors like for the Center of Inclusivity, the Reformation Project, and Q Christian Fellowship. He brings with him an intentional focus on the church being inclusive of a diversity of people and expressions as an authentic reflection of the love of God. Darren, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm absolutely glad to be here. It's so good to see your face. I just want to say that. (laughs) It's it's been forever. (laughs) I know. I talked about in the intro that that one of the things that drew me to you is this, you have this radiant presence about you and it's like even coming through the screen. So it's just really good to see your face. So appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the things that you say about yourself is with some of the work that you do is around story. You're a lover of story and storytelling. And so since you are a storyteller, I was wondering uh, based on what is happening around us right now, what do you think is the story you believe the world is trying to tell right now? Yeah, I, the the thread that I keep seeing over and over and over again is about fear. You yeah. Know, mm-hmm. We have this very basic human survival instinct that we're wired to in some ways be afraid of certain things, things that can hurt us, things that that may threaten our existence, mm-hmm. but our bodies and our brains don't always talk to each other about which things are real and which things are just imagined. Mm-hmm. And lots of people have learned how to capitalize on telling stories about who you should be afraid of, you know, whether oh, yeah. it's drag queen story hours 
or uh, trans individuals existing, there are all kinds of stories being told about these big bad people you should be afraid of. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, stories are being told that, oh no, guns aren't a problem in this country, mm -hmm. or this idea that um, that that different groups who have been consistently harmful to entire demographics of people, that they're not the problem, mm -hmm. that it's this group that you don't know and that they're lurking in the shadows. Mm -hmm. Like, no, we've got you on tape saying and doing horrible things, but yeah. you've convinced us that we need to be afraid of this mysterious other that you can only identify for us and tell us what they're up to. <laughs> mm -hmm. Isn't it wild? It just feels so strange for me to just to witness how some voices are much louder, come out as much louder than others. And then we decide, and then people decide, okay. And they're, and really it's, it's less of a demographic, right? Like they're mm -hmm. actually in the minority, yeah, but their voices are the loudest. And it feels almost like, if I can say that. You know, when there's um, like a toddlers who aren't getting their emotional needs met. And so we naturally have like a very large temper tantrum because that's mm -hmm. just what our body does because we can't process those emotions. It feels like they're the toddlers that are in the grocery store that are falling on there, you know, <laughs> yeah, like hitting the floors. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. And and I think you're describing in what feels like just kind of an anecdotal way, I think you're really describing what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, our 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 child selves that don't have a full grasp and understanding of the world mm -hmm. will kind of lash out in whatever ways seem appropriate at the moment, but mm -hmm. it's not until we grow and develop some more experience and and have some more um vocabulary for how to express our frustrations mm -hmm. that's when we grow up but right. for many the emotional labor and the emotional work has not been a part of their story has not been a part of what they've yeah. been equipped with and that also makes it hard to have some of these conversations because mm -hmm. for some of us we've been we've been tasked with doing the emotional labor for not only ourselves but for others. Right. And we're speaking to a group that is just now beginning. And, and so you get these responses like, oh, everyone's so sensitive. Everyone's mm -hmm. so, so this or that. And it's just like, no, this is what adults do. We, we are considerate of each other. We're able to, mm -hmm. to, to marshal our gut emotions so that we can have a productive conversation a way forward. Yeah but it's hard. It's hard work. It is. But it feels like what you're just saying, it's like those who are able to hold the capacity are willing to look at a whole story and see oh, the many yes. players within the story and the plot line and what's happening and, you know, and Absolutely. hold space for that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's not easy, but it's worth it. Right. Yeah. Like, there's so much that there's so much rich richness that we get when we're able to kind of suspend our judgment and not react in fear um, and listen to another story and find out another perspective and not assume that anything that is other or unknown or unusual is going to be the end of or demise of us. 
Mm -hmm. right? Like there, there really is, uh, I'm already getting into my song lyrics. There really is room (laughs) for us all. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, and I, the story that we're hearing. Yeah. And I think there's also that, I mean, you just said it, but it's like when we, I'm going back to this time when I was in journalism class when I was in high school. And I remember I had a room with this. We went to a summer camp. I had a room with this girl who I did not like. I was like, oh, Oh, (laughs) of course I was put with her. And of course, what happened is we had to spend time together and we had to get to know each other's story. And then she became a person who I just was thought just, you know, loved because we actually had just so much in common. And there was like that essence of of we were more similar than we were different, you know, and even within the difference, there was this beauty about it because we could learn from one another, you know, and I, as though that's a small example, I just think when we're able to get to that point where you can see the web of how we are connected, it brings a sense of richness that we can't even think of of ourselves, of what that can be like. It's profound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious, though, you know, I, I, I know you you wanted to hear more of my stories, but how did you, what happened that you got to the point of hearing that person or hearing that story? What, what started that, if you, if you recall? Well, we just, I mean, we were bored teenagers and we had to be in this dorm room together. And so we ended up just talking and asking about each other's lives and, mm-hmm. Uh, we actually had a similar family story. Both came from divorced parents. Both had really hard um, teen, preteen years within yeah. that. And we could instantly connect on yeah. that level of understanding that, oh, we've been through some hard things and mm-hmm. I handled it this way. You handled it that way, you know, but where, what else have we learned? And I just saw a, a new appreciation for her, Yeah, you know, so yeah. yeah, and I think there's something special to be said about that proximity. You mm-hmm. know, when you're when you're when you're close enough to someone, mm-hmm. um, uh, my good friend Lynn uh, always teaches this idea of um, to be close enough to hug someone. You're also close enough to step on their toes, mm-hmm. and the challenge is like you know we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to get close. We don't want to have our toes stepped on. But we also cut ourselves off from love. We cut ourselves off from from that hug that we also yeah. are desperately looking for. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I want us to get closer. <laughs> Don't you think? So? I just feel like that's actually what everyone wants. But again, going back to what you said, there's like this fear. And how do we learn to lean into the fear? Because, you know, like it's that essence of connection. Like we just need a connection. And I feel... I, what was it? It was something, it was in one of my last podcasts that I talk about when we were talking about addiction mm-hmm. and we were talking about essentially what can help us with addiction is essentially connection, learning yes. how to connect yes, with others. And, but it, the challenge is being brave enough to get away from your isolation and right. removing yourself from the <laughs> entire aspect of the thoughts that are going in your brain, like constant that are negative and things like that. Yeah. Right. So will you bring people together speaking of, of this and making connections and 
a lot of the people you bring together have different ideas and beliefs. So then what ends up being the reason they are able to connect that you see? It 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 still goes back um, to a couple of things that we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. When we have one, that proximity, that there's mm-hmm. someone who's physically close to us, who likely we've never been aware of, whether mm-hmm. that's the fact that I'm a black man, mm-hmm. whether that's the fact that I'm a, a queer man or a gay man, um, if that's the fact that I'm neurodivergent, I choose to to be open about these various parts of my story um, because in my experience, without me trying to convince or persuade people getting to know me, it challenges the narrative that they already have about people like me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, on my part, it is a, an intentional choice. It's a, it's a form of advocacy and, and activism. Um, but it's also just authenticity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This, this idea that if I just show up as my whole self, if, I, if I'm willing to be vulnerable in places where people often have not yet been vulnerable with me, I have this opportunity to connect with people and for people to find themselves in my story. Mm-hmm. And so like I often think about my church where I wasn't necessarily perceived as gay mm-hmm. um, because I'd been single for quite some time and the way my masculinity shows up, um, people don't, as- don't always assume that I'm gay. Right. And that's a form of privilege. Um, and so the work I do when it comes to advocacy and, and working with LGBTQ uh, communities and spaces, they knew they could see that I was doing this work. And so I'd have so many of the what I call Nicodemus conversations where people were like, well, 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 how do you work with those people <laughs> okay. or, or how do you hold your faith and still, you know, go mm-hmm. and do X, Y, Z and again, you know, leveraging the privilege because we can't get rid of it. I would have some conversations and be like, yeah, well, you know, let me tell you about, let me tell you about those people, wink, wink. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would start to connect the dots for people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But also um, the fact that, and as I'm getting older and and learning about uh, my own neurodivergence, I know that recognizing patterns is a thing uh for me and people like me and so it's like oh here's some similar pain points and connection points and experience points and here's some other pain points and connection points that you have too Mm -hmm. and so I'll see and notice the similarities and just start drawing little dots and saying hey you know I I think you might know what it feels like to to feel misunderstood or right. to feel alone or feel like you can't be your authentic self. I, I I hear you saying that. And let me tell you about a friend who's going through the same thing. Or let mm. me tell you about a moment in my life where the <laughs> same thing is happening. So I, I I feel like it's it's natural when we're close enough to see each other and to step on each other's toes. Um, but we're increasingly in a world where, or at least in the U.S. Western context, where being alone, being isolated, being... Um, encouraged to quote unquote get out on your own as soon as possible is is our standard and it's just yeah. it's not 
it's not common in human history. This is, no. this is kind of a new thing we're in right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's this whole other essence of, you know, I think about community and the importance of community mm-hmm. and I, you know, as being an adult woman who is in business for herself and who spent most of my adult life being a stay at home mom, mm-hmm. I really have never felt so I have been more lonely as an adult mm. than ever before, you know? Yeah. And I think there's so there's just damage in that. And the fact that we have are setting up our society to be that where yeah. it feels more isolated and because you miss again, that richness of being together and the connections that you can make and, right, you know, and I think about how societies used to function before we had backyards and fences, <laughs> you know, right. in that, um, in that yeah. suburb kind of mentality, but where people were on their front porch, the front stoop and mm-hmm. talked with each other and <laughs> right. had more relatives. Yeah. And had more relatives who lived nearby, you know, we're also very yeah. far away from our relatives and right. there's something to be said about that. Yeah. And I it also, an effect. yeah. And I heard from you too, with the fact where you're saying, the story within, right? People see the story within one another. It feels also that um, one of the things where we're drawn into of understanding each other is that essence of a reflection of us. Mm-hmm. When a person can reflect back mm-hmm. something that we're struggling with, something that we also want, you know, in our life, Uh, where we feel then drawn to a person to learn from them, you know, because we also admire that. So I feel like that's, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. What what I'm hearing is, so I'll I'll tell a little story of my own, right? Yeah. Um, I was in college and this was right around the time that I was ordained. Um, So I'm probably 19 years old. Yeah, that's a, there's a long, I was like, wait a minute. I didn't even know. I don't think I knew that. (laughs) Yes. There's, there's always more stories and backstories and so forth (laughs) that are waiting to be told. Um, (laughs) I'm in college recently Mm -hmm. ordained doing campus ministry. And this was also around the time that I had my ex gay. I'm not gay anymore. Conversion moment. Okay. And in this time, my pastor told me never talk about this again never talk about having been gay never tell that testimony that was just something that was was bad and I shouldn't be talking about Hmm. so I had learned to 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 silence my story Mm -hmm. for the comfort of of this guy who Mm -hmm. was my spiritual leader but I'd also disconnected in some ways from like what God was doing in my life at that point Mm -hmm. and while I don't think that God was was in it to change my sexual orientation, I do think that there was something beautiful being discovered in, in this idea of, I just want to be Christian. I just want to forsake all and follow after Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so as I'm trying to live into that, as I'm trying to live into this, into this, this gospel life, I remember failing miserably. And having moment after moment where temptation and eventual giving in and so forth, uh, as I understood it at the time, would happen. And it was like, God, why? 
why on earth do you still put up with me? Why? Mm. I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be the man of God. I'm supposed to be a minister. I'm supposed to be a prophet of, 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 of God. I'm supposed to do all this stuff and I'm failing horribly. Mm-hmm. And God, you keep showing up and reminding me that I'm loved and you keep showing mm. up and reminding me that I'm cared for. And it was like, God, that doesn't make sense. That's not what they told me at church. That's not how any of this is supposed to work. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I, and the 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 understanding that began to develop in me at that point was that God, who created all things and created me in God's image and likeness, saw God's self in me. And we tend to like those who are a little like us, right? Mm-hmm. And so people had given me lots of labels and lots of metrics about what was it what did it mean to be a good man of God? But God wasn't looking at any of that. God was looking, you know, was the scripture say man looks at the outward things. God looks at the, at the heart. Yeah. Like God was reminding me, it's like, no, 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 no. All those labels, all these things, those are secondary. Those are things that people gave you, mm-hmm. but who you are is created in the image and likeness of me. I like, I like, I like us. <laughs> I like us. <laughs> I like what we're doing. <laughs> right. I, 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 we're going somewhere here. Yeah. And the parts of you that are, are in ch- unchangeable, unchanging, like no matter where you are, there, there we are. You know, no matter what situation or quote unquote failure I found myself in, there was still a, a God spark, if you will, in me. Mm-hmm. And God kept going back to that. It wasn't about the behavior. It wasn't about the sexual compulsion. It wasn't about whether or not I was attracted to a man or to a woman or to to any other gender. It was about who I am that transcends all of that. Mm -hmm. Because think about it. We're we're talking about a a God who's existed before and and will exist after and and just is above and beyond all these things that we can ask or, or describe or put words to. Like guys, like I don't have time to get caught up in that one little piece or that one little thing, mm-hmm. and that that really inspired in me this idea that that one I'm just I'm I'm rediscovering myself as the mm-hmm. as the Im- imago dei as the image and likeness of God, and yeah. two that God is is on this journey of of discovery and exploration and like not not surprised but like going along like yeah you know like a parent does when they they -hmm. know all the things that are in the playground but Mm -hmm. they also take joy when the child discovers Mm -hmm. the fun of the slide or the joy Mm -hmm. of the swing it's like yeah you've been on a million swings but it's special because Mm -hmm. your your child is discovering that Mm -hmm. and yeah sometimes you get a bump and a boo-boo and all of those things (laughs) But also, like, that's your kid. You love your kid. Yeah. And why why would you forsake your kid? Because they got a bump on the boo-boo and a scratch. Or because mm-hmm. maybe they were rude to one of the other kids on the playground. Right. Right. Yeah. So so just to reconnect with that, those parts of my story as created by the creator and loved by our our parent God. I kind of feel like, first of all, that was beautiful, but Second of all, I feel like that's the part that I think as humans, we struggle the most with mm-hmm. is to recognizing that the vastness of God and that we all hold this image of God, right? And I think that is just mind-blowing for people. It is. And I, and 
confusing. And I also think, you know, I'm, I'm writing something right now where I talked about how we also are confused by Jesus because (laughs) why would, why would God want to feel inadequate, right? Like Mm -hmm. if he's human, part of the human emotion is not feeling good enough and it's a terrible feeling. So it's confusing of why anyone would want to feel that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, that idea of empathy or to enter into the pain and the suffering of another. Mm-hmm. What kind of love is that? Yeah. But it's the perfect model of what I feel like we're being asked to do by entering into one of those story. Exactly. You know, it's one thing yeah. to just have heard about it. And, and I think it's important that we hear about some stories. But there's something amazing that happens when we show up in the story. When, when we when we begin to rewrite those narratives and and include ourselves and it's not just about them versus us it's about us and us yeah but I'm I'm getting off into Andrew Marin's book now <laughs> <laughs> well that's okay well I feel like this kind of goes into this question because I feel like a lot of this is is understanding the embodiment that we hold and carry with being an image of God and so you are a part of a band called The Many, and you, the lyrics that you guys have, they're just outstanding and touch many people. And a lot of that is because you integrate the body so much into your songs. And that's what I just absolutely loved about you all when I saw you in in February. So can you speak to that about why you think that is really important to bring a sense of embodiment into a worship experience? Yeah. So one major shout out to to the many and especially Lenora Rand, who's our primary songwriter. We're, we're creating this music that intentionally seeks to fill what we, to feel what we feel is a void. Mm-hmm. Whereas we have so much, so much beautiful music that is about the, the hills and the valleys and the and the the streams and the mountains and the oceans and and all this beautiful flowery flowery imagery, right? Mm-hmm. But what is what's the song that you sing when there's been another school shooting? Yeah. What's the song that you sing when you are living with long-term chronic depression? Mm-hmm. Where are the songs that help us to lament? the way we see lament in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so we we decided that we would we would really hone in on that, that we would create new ritual and new liturgy and new new songs to sing that that help meet us in those rough and difficult spots. And so the they these songs they come out of us having lunch together, us feeding and taking care of our bodies. Um and our rehearsals would be these very long times of 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 again singing but also eating and also talking about how life is and out of that would come the ideas for these songs that Lenora would so poetically put into into words Mm. um and then the the other part of what what helps that is that we're in therapy right (laughs) (laughs) like we have survived trauma we we need some support and some help here (laughs) and and realizing that um that it's not just about what we think with our heads, but it is also what we feel with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's becoming an increasing part of just how I'm I'm understanding the world and understanding healing and understanding what it means to really care for the whole person. Yeah. Um, again, I also I often have this critical lens of 
our Western, our American uh, Christ- expressions of Christianity because they have been so uh, so intellectually focused right and and have often held a disdain for the body. Yeah. Um, and again, the stories where this connects is you can uh, for for example, my friend Anna Jelsey, uh, her whole life as a Latina woman was in many evangelical spaces was told to minimize her the curves of her body because they yes. were a stumbling block for men. Mm. Right? She she had no input on the body that God gave her. <laughs> right, right. And her body's not inherently sinful, mm-hmm. but the structures and the intellectual things that were going on said, okay, you can be you can be smart, you can be a preacher, but but your body is going to to shut all of that down. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, or the ways that that our worship spends so much time asking us to just use our our, our brains and our and our thinking, and not very much time. Um, at least in many evangelical, you know, kind of spaces, uh, not very much time with the rest of the body. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some people have gone back to what what was sometimes called smells and bells, right? Where you have, where you have incense that that yeah. again is intentional, where you mm-hmm. have sounds that remind you of what's going on, where there's kneeling and there's standing and there's there's processing. I don't think that those are inherently more worshipful than the, the preached word but mm-hmm. I think that they are f- a full part of the expression right right like why is it so hard for us to imagine how David danced before the Lord mm-hmm. why why is that so foreign to what we know as worship that mm-hmm. we just have no valid clue of what it can mean to physically dance out of your clothes and worship to God mm. in a way that's quote unquote not inappropriate or, or obscene or something right yeah like that was a p- common part of the culture to dance with great exuberance to 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 again be embodied but our world wants us as 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 intellectual workers like you know we're we're losing we're losing the jobs that even require much physical labor because we can do that with machines right and people are scared cuz they're like well what am i going to do you know we're we're hurting people towards jobs that require you to to do more more brain work Mm-hmm. But then now AI and, and all this is taking, it's taking that over away, that too, right? <laughs> because yeah. at the end of the day, we were neither laborers, nor were we just like human calculators, even right. though that's where the term calculator came from, people who did the calculations, right? Mm-hmm. We were always creators. We were always these people who existed probably more than anything else in relationship, in community, in the mm-hmm. ways that we work together. Yeah. And so totally. I, I, I feel like <laughs> and this is this is a long way to, to answer your question, <laughs> but I feel like the, the music that we're doing really does invite us back to the ideas of what does it mean to be a whole person, to have mm-hmm. sad emotions, to have anger, yeah. have doubt. What does it mean for us to do this in community as, a, as an act of worship and as an act of, of communion? Um, what does it mean for us to change our rituals, to change the ways that you know, many of us can 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 mindlessly go mm. through a worship service on a Sunday and not have any connection to anything that happened, but we did it, right? Yeah. What is it? Yeah. What, is, what happens if we change up the wording to the Lord's Prayer, or if we, or if we ask people to wash each other's hands of the horrible things that were said to them? 
in the mm. past like mm-hmm. how how much more tangible an act of forgiveness mm-hmm. is that yeah. that we're leaving on the table yeah we said the words i'm sorry or, or i forgive you there's more to the story oh i mean this is all the stuff i want right <laughs> like everything you're saying i mean like that's why like hearing your music it like is palpable right like it goes to like just the gut and the heart of you and i think i was I mean, everyone knows I talk about it all the time that I was a dancer. And for me, like when I went to seminary, I learned more about the Bible in my dance class than I did Mm. in my Old Testament and New Testament class, for sure, because we had to embody it. And I distinctively remember I took this January term and we went to New York City in 2005 and I went to middle church and um, it was and learned from Jackie Lewis. And it was amazing to see some of their worship experiences and services because it was one day where they had jazz musicians that were playing Mm -hmm. and this man just got up out of his seat and just rocked it like just embodied that music down Mm -hmm. the aisle and it was like he he could not contain himself and I was like I'm in love like this is exactly (laughs) because this for some reason it's like we're put into a worship experience and especially, and I'm going to say, especially among white people, mm-hmm. right? Very cerebral, very stoic sitting there. And I'm like, do we not have any, like, do we not have feelings? Do we not have emotions? Do we not have a body? Because it's just like, stare, listen, rinse and repeat, yeah. Yeah. sit here. And it's, I can't stand it, to be honest with you. It drives me crazy. I think you shouldn't stand it. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Like, Again, fun fact, because I'm full of them. (laughs) Whiteness is, in so many ways, in its creation, because it was created, right? Mm -hmm. In its creation, it is a lack of. It is is, is an abdication of things. Yeah. The the founding framers of this country were so busy trying not to be the English people that they came from, that they that they abandoned things yeah. and abandoned parts of their own heritage so that they could become white. Mm. I mean, I think about just, again, it's as basic as we, as a country, don't typically have bidets, you know, the thing you use to clean up after you go poop. We don't have those because it was considered too British. Oh, for real? Because they're amazing. Why? <laughs> right? I mean, we need them. And, you know, (laughs) hundreds of years later, we're like, oh, this is actually a really good idea. This is actually fantastic. (laughs) These are globally normalized, but because it was considered to be too too European, they did not want that to be the American way. And so we've been wiping ourselves with paper. (laughs) And at one time, almanacs like this. Again, this is just actual history. Oh, my gosh. Stories that we that we lose. (laughs) I just, this, I love that this is where the conversation does. Right. And <laughs> and that's the same thing for how whiteness has worked. To become white in this country, you had to get rid of your Italianness. You had to get yeah. rid of your Germanness. You had to get rid of your Irishness and become white, lose your accent, lose your dances, lose your, the food and the seasoning that you use on it, shade, um, lose all these things. <laughs> so you could become white so that you could what? have power and basically we've become bland 
right <laughs> we've been playing we can become bland and, and so when you people when you hear people yes. say oh i dance so white it's 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 there is no cultural connection to any of it mm. whereas if you if you were dancing like you were you were turkish oh they know how to get down oh for sure <laughs> If you were dancing, Shoot. you know, like yeah. you were you, like all these other groups that you once were that you, you know, people love to list their DNA history, ancestry mm -hmm. percentages, but have zero connection to the to the culture that those have were. That. Yeah. And so, again, it's just like, yeah, so no, it, it makes sense that whiteness and Christianity paired together to make this thing that is lack of expression and, and mm. vividness and color. Mm. And instead is this. Oh, I'm just going to deny myself, deny, 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 deny the oh. body, deny the dance, deny the expression. I'm going to deny. And one day we'll go to a white heaven with white clouds and wear white robes. And it's just like, did y'all read Revelation? And <laughs> <laughs> how any of this works. I'm excited. But what we get from the gift that is people of color, people who have, who have survived the oppression or the, the, the um the supremacy of whiteness and are have been creating and finding ways to exist and and subvert and to to continue this creation story mm -hmm. i think we get this opportunity to get reconnected with ourselves to yeah get re reconnected with our ancestry to get reconnected with those stories and get reconnected with the bidet like we can clean was... this up <laughs> <laughs> let's get reconnected with the bidet there's a song there there is a there song is. right there. <laughs> I just want to tell the listeners the entire time Darren was speaking, my hands were in the air. <laughs> like, yes, we are going to church. <laughs> we are going to church. And really, it's the denying. Like when you have talking about denying, mm -hmm. I mean, there is so much denying in the white culture where mm -hmm. I'm like, do, do we not understand that there's joy <laughs> that exists? It's like, I just feel like we are constantly trying to move into this essence of perfection that does not exist yeah and we are constantly living into this mirage is that the correct word yeah of, and I'm like what why like what are we doing right. <laughs> we are spending so much of our energy on this planet not connecting with people who are amazing and denying ourselves joy and pleasure of, I mean, I'm a sex educator. Let's talk about it, right? Like we're denying essence of of pleasure because of this weird understanding that people created a while ago out of shame. And why? Like, what is the point? What are we doing? You what know? Are, what are we doing? Last, last, last little caveat or yeah. last little little side note. Um, you probably talked about this, but the the creation of missionary position. Mm. Yes. No, go no. Okay. talk about it. <laughs> so, so why, why, why do we call it missionary position? Um, missionaries who were uh, quote unquote doing mission work to um, indigenous peoples literally around the world mm -hmm. who had sex in all kinds of positions mm -hmm. said that those positions were ungodly. Mm -hmm. that the only proper mm -hmm. way to have sex is for a man and a woman to be facing each other and that that became known to the people as this is the missionary's position. Yeah. And and now I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a great way to have sex. I am saying that it was presented as the only way. Anyway, the, the only God, way. The mm -hmm. godly way. 
Yeah. And um, in similar fashion, and this is really way on a tangent, but in similar fashion, you might see in Asian culture, like Japanese culture of um, this, is, I'm, I promise I can make this a safe for work story of tentacles being part of like sexual. Yeah. So yeah. I've forth. seen that. Mm -hmm. This also came from missionaries because the missionaries were oh, so set mm -hmm. on um, ending this practice of sharing these scrolls that had erotic uh, drawings on them. These, this is how you, you know, today we bring a bottle or bring, you know, bring a dish over at back, back then in that, in that time period, they brought over these scrolls and you shared and, and looked at these scrolls together. This was a family activity. Hmm. They said, oh, that's inappropriate. And so the, the, the the government at that time responded by banning the appearance of human genitals interacting with each other hmm. and so if you fast forward as many humans are we're creative right so right the legalistic ways that we create these things for public appearance because they never are about actually changing our hearts or who we are or anything Mm -hmm. So we get things like the little bars or these blurred areas right. in the in the things, but also animals didn't count. Mm. So mm -hmm. all kinds of human animal art and imagery and eroticism came up as a substitute for the mm. ways that humans were expressing themselves sexually to each other. Mm. And again, it's like if if Christians keep missing the mark and projecting on the people what they can't do as a way of quote unquote, getting them to God, then we see all this other stuff come. And now it's not a judgment, good or bad on, on tentacle stuff. <laughs> right. But it's to say, just like purity culture in the U S is having this huge, like, Oh, this didn't work. I mm -hmm. kissed dating goodbye. Yeah. Even the person who wrote it is like, that was not great advice. Right. We're, we're seeing how much we've lost and how much we've done by by just simply doing this this don't do list by, exactly. by uh, uh, continually taking things away from folks um, yeah. when instead we could really be learning and um, building building a deeper understanding right if somebody had sat and 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 thought about what is happening in it and is there actual harm here mm -hmm. you know if somebody had had spent time learning the cultures that they were going to. Right. And seeing what was this even important? Was this necessary? Mm -hmm. Instead, we create all these offshoots and, and all these other expressions that that now we once again are like, oh, they're not doing it right. <laughs> right. So, well, again, and I think <laughs> that's like, no, like that's I, you know, help teach human sexuality to um, therapy students. And we talk about how, you know, many people then go through their process of um looking back at the history of themselves of what have mm -hmm. they been told and what have, what are they learning? And, you know, we have a lot of older students as well, right? We have second career people and different things. And oftentimes we have people maybe in their fifties who are just like, why am I learning about this now? <laughs> like mm -hmm. why, like this should have been talked to me like when I was growing up, why am I learning right. this now? And they experience anger, just mm -hmm. an immense amount of anger and grief, right? Because by not having more of these intentional conversations and things like that, we feel a lack of, we feel denied of um, important understandings, but also 
some of what my students talk about too is the is the aspect of like the purity culture that they lived into and how really they spend then most of their adult life changing the narrative of that because of the harm that it has created for them and because really it has so much of the instructions we've been given around sex actually takes us away from the center of who we are yes and from the natural exploration that we might even do as kids of getting to know who we are and understanding and understanding the depths of ourselves and the depths of how we can connect as human beings and oftentimes we think that there's this this idea of normal mm-hmm. that exists for everyone and that we have to fit into this tiny scheme of normal or this little box that we have created when really one of the things I help teach is what is normal is what is okay for you. What feels good for you. You actually don't need to compare that to anybody else. Yeah. And as long as these actions or behaviors are not causing harm, right. In terms of, of hurting another person, but even in the, in the smallest things of how much people have sex, like when we talk about what's the normal amount of people have sex a week, well, guess what? You get to decide that for yourself. That part. Right? You get to decide. <laughs> you get to decide what feels desirable for you. That's your decision. It's not anyone else's to tell you. And I think being able to start opening that box for people brings them a sense of freedom. Yeah. You know, but also starts having to initiate this sense of repair. Mm-hmm. and care and compassion for themselves because yeah. it really it breaks us down and i think that's where we carry so much shame and and hurt and fear mm-hmm. going back to fear of then you know many there's many people then who who see this and instead of embracing the sense of change and learning a different story and changing the narrative instead i think they lash out of well then you can't you don't get to do this then Right. You know, this doesn't, if I, if I can't get there, then you shall not be able to as well. And that, I I love that you named anger in this. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's, that's the other major thing we're seeing right now. A Mm -hmm. lot of people are very, very, very deeply, gutturally Mm -hmm. angry. Mm -hmm. And they're, whether they're angry at the government or angry at society or angry at the person that they've never met but they heard something about on the news angry and I think it's in part because we have been limited for so long we have been we've had so much taken away from us we've had so little freedom and agency and again we get we getting told that oh the problem isn't that that trans people and non-binary people are are having freedom to name their own gender name their own experience and tell their own stories and live their own lives the problem is that they're going to come after you and they're going to make you limited and they're going to they're going to cancel you Mm. because you didn't use the right pronoun and it's just like there's something to be angry about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the anger isn't from this very small population of people who are just trying to live their lives the anger is actually that we were all sold the idea that if we just conform to right. a certain set of rules mm-hmm. law that that will get the things that that we're supposed to have that will mm-hmm. be entitled to a few things right so right. it's like yeah i I've, I've had so many people again in these nicodemus 
conversations like, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I wasn't sure about my sexuality, but I chose. And that's the moment I, mm-hmm. I chose mm-hmm. what, what they're what they're confessing with maybe without realizing is that there was a pressure and a decision that was put upon them where they knew and recognized something more in themselves and the prevailing attitude, the prevailing thought prompted them to choose to just deny a whole part of their lives. Mm -hmm. And now 40, 50, 60 years later, they're feeling like I was shortchanged. I didn't get to have that. Why do you get to have that? Mm -hmm. I felt weird. I felt different. You, why, why should you be able to express that difference? And they're fighting to hold on to the same, the same horrible standards that they were held to. Um, when the reality is, it's like, yeah, there's something to to grieve here. Mm-hmm. There's something to be angry about here, and, and, and that anger is completely valid. But it's yeah. not, it's not for the people who are experiencing the freedom that you wish you would have had. Mm-hmm. It's not for the people who, who um, are just trying to figure out their lives or just trying to survive. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, this this connects me to an, an, another piece um, when we talk about. Um, you know, as long as you're not being harmed, uh, some of the work that I do is in harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea that we should talk about what people are doing and meet people where they are so that wherever that is, we help them take one step toward less harm. Right. And so if that means that someone's having lots of sex, Hey, are you using prep to prevent HIV? Mm Mm-hmm. Are you getting tested regularly? Now, someone else might say, but they should just have less sex. And yes, that is one way that reduces your exposure to harm in the form of sexually transmitted diseases and infections. But it's not the only way. Right. And instead of people realizing that the the way that you've been holding on to was the one that was presented to you. Mm-hmm. Like the like for example, the many people who are given the idea that if you, oh if you have a bunch of sex and you're gonna have HIV and die of AIDS, like my pastor told me at one point in time, sure. right? Mm-hmm. They're like, see, that's 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 why those people deserve it, and it's like, no, they Mm-mm. don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one right. does. Mm-mm. And so, cutting off healthcare for those people mm. is not justice. No, it's not mercy. It's not gospel. Mm-mm. It's not Christian. This is. This is punitive. It is punishment because you felt punished and you feel like the best way to, to keep things going is to punish others. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think we have this opportunity to rewrite those stories and to, to instead of seeing, instead of re- remembering and recreating the kind of, of harshness and judgment and, and legalistic punitive thinking that many of us were raised in, that many of us were harmed by, that many of us were physically injured by. I think there's an opportunity for us to, again, open up the, open up the conversation. Let's find out what actually helps people. We know that fear tactics don't prevent behavior. We know that punishment doesn't stop or change behavior. We know that giving people an opportunity to choose has, goes a long way, that educating Mm -hmm. people about their choices and their options means a lot of people don't even choose to do things it's like right. if you educate people yeah. about sex and sexuality they wait longer imagine they... that <laughs> isn't that wild <laughs> who would have thought oh you know mm-hmm. well would you be able to um 
uh, talk more about the work that you've done with HIV? Sure. Um, so for the last few years, really just starting on Facebook and, and having conversations with folks in, in chat groups and in comment threads, I noticed that there's a lot of misinformation when it comes to when it comes to sex and sexuality and sexual health. Mm -hmm. And so um, as a because, uh, again, I have a million backgrounds as a photographer, I was often working with organizations that were doing HIV prevention and um, and support for people living with HIV. Mm -hmm. And so I would get this like I'd be in the same room with the doctors and the public health experts while they're talking amongst each other, I'm supposed to be photographing, but I'm like taking mental notes, like sure. learning. That's oh, amazing. This is really profound stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I would take that back into my own conversations in everyday life and eventually getting to the point that, that it just became a natural part of the conversations I was having, you know, whether it was talking to church leaders about how the people, even people who, for example, are pursuing celibacy, Mm -hmm. They too need sexual health education. Yeah. But the the prevailing thought was, oh, we shouldn't talk to them about sex because that causes them to stumble. We're like, no, mm -hmm. you're literally saying don't wear seatbelts because if you wear a seatbelt, you you might uh, get in a car accident. It's 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 like, no, we we need the seatbelts and we yeah. need to make the car safer and mm -hmm. we need to make sure people know how to use the seatbelt. Mm -hmm. But. But all of that um, over the years has just been a like an undercurrent of the work I've been doing. I'd often actually minimize many of those conversations because for many church leaders and church spaces, if you're talking about sex and sexuality, you're not welcome at the table. You're not welcome to doesn't doesn't matter. Right. Like, I, oh, I, yeah, I feel I that was, mm -hmm. <laughs> I was publicly blasted by a conservative Christian magazine for being quote unquote openly gay worship leader at a large, uh, a large church, large evangelical church. And way down in the article, it mentions that I was living um, an abstinent life at the time and considering celibacy. And even though they were saying we've, that, that this church has somehow abandoned the Bible and abandoned the gospel, even their commenters were like, well, if he's celibate, what's wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But there's this disconnection between what does it mean to have these ideals versus mm -hmm. to live them out in praxis, to, to put this ideal into a living, breathing form. Mm -hmm. And I, I embodied the things that they said that they were advocating for, but they didn't know how to receive someone like me. Mm -hmm. And so um, I realized for many years that that was very costly work because I was constantly on, on trial and constantly have to live to this unrealistic expectation mm. of perfect performance means you could maybe have influence here. Maybe right. you can talk uh, to us about the things it's that so are exhausting. Doing that harmful, right? Yeah. So exhausting. And I realized that they often aren't coming with an open mind unless they literally physically sought me out to ask me a question. The mm -hmm. majority of people who were in that space were showing up to just disagree with anything I had to say. It could be literally the exact thing that they just said and they disagreed with it and they'd argue against it. Oh my gosh. And so I realized that uh, that there is a calling on my life and that that calling is to the, the least of these. Mm -hmm. um, and that church folks are not the least of these. Church folks in the U.S. have money and representation and congressmen and political power and, and all this other stuff. But there's a whole generation 
of LGBTQ folks in the U.S., many of them, um, one study found 89% of LGBTQ people grew up in Christian churches in the U.S. Mm. The U.S. average is 50%. Like we are overrepresented growing up in churches. Wow. The, the vast majority of those people who grew up in churches have also left yeah. and have zero, um, zero faith affiliation at this point. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yeah, let me let me shift over a bit, um, because again, it was costly to me. I was I was having to be very performative rather than be authentic. And there was a whole group that I couldn't even fully be present with because I had to look good to the people who were just waiting to judge me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I got more into harm reduction as a as an umbrella because if you're talking about sexual health, you're also talking about all kinds of behaviors and all kinds of environmental factors. Because just the just something like having access to healthcare can be all the difference in the world between whether or not you have an STI or not. Yeah, like one hundred percent. It's the difference to yeah. have access and have education and have doctors who are learning about these things mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. sitting there waiting to judge you for whatever your behavior was, rather than heal you and make sure you're safe and and healthy. Yeah. And so I I started doing much more work with that, and then in the last uh, two yeah. Two and a half, three years, um, I've been working with a local coalition called Link Up Chicago, and we exist um, to to be a group of community leaders who are addressing the rise of meth use amongst Black, gay, and bisexual, the same gender loving men. Mm. Many times, once I name what we're doing, uh, like a, a bit of a, a of a quizzical look comes across across people's faces because the vast majority of us know meth as a white suburban heterosexual type of problem because that's the those are the faces that got the the coverage in the media stories and the movies and the docu docu series about it but yeah. um by our research one in three black gay men in chicago wow. are using methamphetamines wow right that's, that's yeah a that's a high pers- that's a high percentage yeah and there's no 60 minute special about it, right? Mm. There's not there's yeah. not a lot of coverage about it. And and I can speak specifically to the history of Chicago. There's a there's a really interesting tie in how funding and public support work. Um, because most of our funding is also political, it's channeled through different things and it's based on popularity more than it is need. Mm-hmm. When HIV was seen as a white gay men's disease. Mm-hmm. Lots of folks eventually, and through the work of many, many advocates, rallied around stopping HIV, and the face of HIV was white gay men. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it it trickled down, and white gay men were covered and had access to care, but the rest, specifically um, black and brown men, um, black women, especially are a, a huge yeah. population that is... Uh, I think one of the, the most, one of the largest populations that are, are newly contracting HIV. Right. When they became the focus, there weren't any new movies about our lives and our stories mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. HIV. They, mm-hmm. that, that it no longer was the hot topic and mm-hmm. the thing that we're, you know, doing presidential funding and all this other stuff for. Mm-hmm. Now, the funding still exists, thankfully, and that's there. But again, when we talk about behavior, it's not just a single topic. It's not just the one thing that you need to look at. 
And so substance use, sex work, all these things are part of this bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And um, in the case of meth, um, one of the things that we found was, uh, and this, again, this sounds very controversial, but I'm I'm just describing what is, um, was that uh, some of the Black men who were doing survival sex work would be engaged by affluent white gay men Mm -hmm. who pay extra to what's called party and play or to use methamphetamines in their sexual activity. Okay. And so as more affluent, socially connected white gay men who aren't as likely to end up in jail for using a substance, who aren't as likely to have a lack of access to healthcare if they overdose or if they need any kind of other support, who Mm -hmm. have all these other social connections. Right. They could use meth and keep on working and, you know, go about life for the most part. Mm-hmm. But in our communities where there's where there's systemic disconnection, where there's lack lack of access to health care, where there's not the same kind of social connection that that can get you out of trouble if something happens, it has become a, a quiet plague for us. Yeah. It's become a quiet epidemic for us. And so we uh we have the example, oh gosh, I, I wish I was better at remembering the names. We have the example of the of the the white affluent democratic uh political like philanthropist in california having two black gay men who are sex workers die in his home mm. from meth overdose really and the police go oh he's fine <laughs> oh gosh I, and again i wish i could remember the names but there's there's we're just now starting to see some documentaries about that story but I, it happened more than once and it was and it wasn't even investigated until after the second time and after much public outcry about what is going on that men keep dying from meth overdose in this man's house and no one and oh no it happened multiple times multiple times in the oh, same gosh. house oh gosh and so it, it becomes this perfect illustration of the difference yeah. When, when you factor in race, because it's not, again, it's not just sexual behavior, right? When exactly. You factor in race, you factor in, in income, you factor in social connection that the police would see him and go, oh, we know him. He's fine. Whereas they don't have to know me, but they can see the color of my skin. And next thing mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm going to be in jail. I'm going to be prosecuted on drug charges. I'm going to be all yeah. these other things. The book is going to be thrown at me. Of course. And I'm not going to be sent to a rehab. I'm not going to be sent to the kind of care mm-hmm. that would happen to the person that you feel a bit more resonance with. Yeah. That's oh, that's just like my uncle. He's, you know, we we gotta have a little grace with him. Sure. Again, like for me, like studying sexuality in all honesty is what has taught me more about racism <laughs> and systematic oppressions in our country than anything else because of the intersectionalities that lie between all of it right that you just spoke about yeah and it's just it's heartbreaking you know continually I mean I know I mean my background and just so you're aware is I grew up in a very suburban middle class white community Mm -hmm. and I have been having to learn a lot you know because that was just and, you know, and it was the newscast that showed me, you know, who who showed criminals. And of course, all of them looked black, right? And brown. And so 
I have spent so much of my adult life unpacking the mm-hmm. way that I, where, where's my body responding with fear and why, mm-hmm. and having to check myself and different things like that. And I mean, I, I am grateful for finding myself in the sex ed community yeah. because it really has opened my eyes more than anything else, Yeah, you know, with reproductive justice mm-hmm. and so much of this. And I'm so glad you talked about health access. I mean, so much of it lies around that. Right. And it's just, uh, you know, so many things. I mean, we could have an entire other show. We we could do a whole series. <laughs> we could do whole sections of race and sexual <laughs> sexuality and history in this country. Yes, one hundred percent. But I, I I think that's I think that's ah now I have feelings. Um, I mean, I always have feelings, but it it all comes back to me uh, for the center of like where I am in my story, right? Yeah, where. I am a black man who history in the United States has both portrayed me as a sexual threat mm-hmm. and as this docile, oh, good for nothing, do nothing, non-threat that needs to be coerced into work yeah. and to be someone who's who's living with neurodivergence, to be someone who's living in poverty, to be someone who is surviving all kinds of systemic injustice and trying to figure out after the after the church injured me about mm-hmm. my sexuality mm-hmm. after the after my society has given me both hyper masculine hyper macho images and said that as a gay man I'm not that or can't be that and I've internalized that within you know we've internalized that in our own community you don't, yeah. you don't need white people to say that to us anymore right sure sure how do i how do i get back to the image and likeness that mm. i was fully created who's a yeah. sexual being Mm-hmm. Who, is, who is loved and beloved, who is capable of loving another person in the way that God has equipped me to do. How? Where do I start that journey? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and who uh. walks with me on that? And who listens to those stories? And where am I safe to even disclose any of that? Seriously. You know, it's, mm-hmm. so I, I, in, in many ways, it's, it's, it is for us, by us, um, this idea of in the same way that we create the music that we've been longing to hear in the same way that we create the social resources that we've been longing to see. Um, I tell my story because I, I, I hope to create space for the stories that I've been longing to tell and yeah. the stories I'm hoping to hear back. Like we have to do something different. It, as Andre Henry says, it doesn't have to be this way. It we doesn't. can have a beautiful, rich life-giving community mm-hmm. when we when we open up and begin to t- talk about some of these stories even the uncomfortable ones yeah well I believe that and I thank you for for being vulnerable in this space and sharing and everything that you do because I just I appreciate you so much our time has really gone <laughs> so we've, we've had a good time <laughs> we've had a good time I enjoy it Darren can you tell me just one, I end my show with what story are you reframing today? Yeah, I'm, I am re, I'm reframing my own story. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've, as I've grown older and um, I'm somebody with adult diagnosed ADHD. And like I said, someone who spent uh, close to 20 years avoiding sex and sexuality at the, at the request of various church communities. Um, I have a, and as somebody who spent 
at least the last 10 years being very public about all of this. Yeah. Um, I'm having, I'm finding that I know a version of my story that is centered on what other people want to hear and need to hear. Mm-hmm. And that I'm very good at telling that story that that is useful to them. But that there are huge pieces of my story that I don't even know mm. that I haven't listened to for myself, that I haven't told myself. And as a trauma survivor, that there are some parts of my story that I need to, to tell myself differently, that I need to rewrite. Yeah. Um, because again, I'm, I'm, I am created in the image of the creator to be a creative. Like I, it's not that I'm making up the facts or changing what happened to me and around me, but I can write a new story about what that was and what that looks like. And it doesn't have to center on what other people want to hear for themselves. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm worthy of my own story. I'm worthy of, of being a co-creator with God and, and how we go forward from here. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm making the space to do that. I'm slowing down. I'm listening to my body and listening to what it needs, like care and nutrition and, uh, and gentle touch and so forth. And I am, I'm, uh, I'm figuring it out as I go. So, mm. yeah. Oh, thank you. I think that's, um, well, I just feel, I guess, I don't know what I was wanting to say, but except for the fact that I just feel so blessed to know you. I just, I, that. I do. I feel blessed to know you. And I just hope that we can even continue to, to get to know each other and spend time together. Cause I, I want that for you, you know, and for everyone, right? Like yeah. what a beautiful thing for us to, to get to know ourselves and to reframe the stories you know, that we've been telling ourselves or that we find ourselves also trapped in or that yeah. someone has given to us that is not really ours. And so, yeah. So thank you so much, Darren, for the the work that you do and just who you are. And can you tell us where people can, can find you? Certainly. Um, as always, you can, you can use the Google and, uh, look for Darren Calhoun, <laughs> the uh, Google, right. Uh, my name, Darren Calhoun.com, uh, is certainly a great place to look. Hey, Darren, H-E-Y-D-A-R-R-E-N is also, uh, useful on most of the social profiles. You can even, uh, reach out on Facebook. My, my friends list is full, but you can follow and you can inbox. So <laughs> awesome. <laughs> wherever it works, I'd love to hear from you. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much.